Well, good morning. How are you all doing? Cool. I like it. Hope you guys got some coffee. Uh, my name is Marco. I serve as the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. Thank you so much for hanging out with us this morning and worshiping alongside of us. Got a couple of things for you before we dive into our time. Uh, the first thing is that if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it or load your Bible. We're going to find ourselves in Jonah. Technically, we're in Jonah chapter 2, but we're going to start in Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, and work our way through Jonah chapter 2, verse 10. While you do that, I'll ramble just a little bit. First thing is, if you are new, we'd love to hang out with you over coffee or grab some lunch. So please fill out one of the Connect cards that are in the chairs uh, right where you're at. Uh, drop it in the offering basket or uh, take it to the back Connect area. Uh, man, we'll, we'd love to connect with you. The second thing is, if you don't have a Bible, so we preach through books of the Bible here. We love God's Word. And so if you don't have a Bible with you, we do have Bibles in the chairs before you. Pick one up, that's our gift to you. If you know someone who would benefit from having one, definitely take that. And finally, uh, scripture journals. So every time we walk through books of the Bible, we want to hook you guys up with resources and gifts and things like that. One of the things that we really value is not only reading God's Word, but also writing about what God is doing through His Word in us and for us. And, uh, and so because we love being nerds, uh, in the back in the Connect desk, uh, we have these scripture journals. These are our gifts to you as we walk through uh, the book of Jonah. Uh, if you are unfamiliar with these scripture journals, they're really nice. These are actually moleskin journals with some quality paper. And so on one side, we have God's word. On the other side, we have space for you to take notes in, write your prayers, etc., etc. Uh, what's really cool about this one that we have uh, as we walk through Jonah is that it's not only Jonah, but it has Jonah, Micah, Nahum, and Habakkuk. So you definitely get a bunch of little resources. So be sure to pick one up at the Connect Desk. There is a limited quantity, so it's like first come, first, first serve, and you, someone can have this one. Anyway, <coughs> that's, uh, I think that's all I, all I have for us. Uh, let me kind of bring you up to speed as to what we're doing. Um, so as I, as I mentioned, we find ourselves in the book of Jonah. It's in the Old Testament. It's a short book. It's a small book. It's only four chapters, which means it's like a page and a half. So if you're having trouble finding it, maybe you should memorize the names of the books of the Bible. And uh, apart from that, uh, we're going to be in this series uh, through the month of November. Uh, last week, we covered pretty much chapter one. And uh, man, it was great discussion but in addition to that, uh, at the very least, personally, it was very convicting. I uh, heard some really good feedback from uh, that, that time. If you were not with us last week, definitely listen to the sermon. I would also encourage you to read uh, Jonah, kind of bringing you up to speed on what has gone down. So there's this dude. His name is Jonah. He is a prophet, and as a prophet, he has been called and chosen by God to essentially preach repentance to a people who don't know God. Pretty simple, right? In addition to that, by being a prophet, it actually tells us a little bit about Jonah. For instance, one of the things that it does tell us is that as a prophet of God, Jonah knows God, and Jonah knows God's word, and Jonah knows what God is capable of doing. That is something that is super important because one of the things I mentioned last week was my overall thesis, my, my argument for the book of Jonah is that as Christians, our problem isn't that we do not understand God's word. My problem is that we actually, our problem is that we actually do understand God's word. And so, uh, so that's a, a big theme in light of, in light of Jonah. Anyway, 
Uh, God calls Jonah as a prophet. God calls him to go preach repentance to Nineveh, the great city of Nineveh. And instead of Jonah going to Nineveh, homeboy flees. And what we see in chapter 1 is uh, we see this ongoing language of the presence of the Lord, the presence of the Lord, that he is fleeing the presence of the Lord. That was one of the questions that we walked through and wrestled through in our groups this week. What does it mean to flee the Lord? I'll talk a little bit about that later on this morning. Anyway, as Jonah flees the Lord in light of what God has called him to, what we see God do is even in his rebellion, God pursues him. God pursues him. God pursues the sailors that he is with, sailors who don't know who God is, sailors who do not worship God, and he pursues these sailors, and eventually these sailors come to know God. And so when we read through Jonah, even though Jonah is mm, an important character, a significant character, even as we read through Jonah and we come to uh, be introduced to other people who don't know God, these people or these characters aren't the main character. The main character of Jonah is God and his pursuit of rebels. Whether they know him or not, it is his pursuit of rebels. And so that's a quick review from our time last week. And, and, and I'd actually like to start our time going into verse 17, but I'd actually like to start our time with a question. And the question is, have you ever had a personal encounter with God? I've had a lot of coffee, so I'll slow it down, right? Have you ever had a personal encounter with God? This is the kind of encounter where it isn't as a result of community. Like, many of you who, who, who love Jesus and follow Jesus maybe came to know Jesus through your friends around you, through Bible study, and maybe they started inviting you to the Sunday gathering, or they invited you to group, and man, God was doing something. Like, yes, that's good and wonderful, but in addition to that, there must have been this personal encounter with the Lord where it's just you and Him. That's the kind of encounter I'm talking about. I would actually argue that when it comes to restoration, which is really what we're going to be talking about this morning, that when it comes to restoration or salvation, a personal encounter with God is required. The truth is, you can speak the language of the church, you can buy the books in the Christian book section, you can go to the gatherings and all the community groups you want and not at one point have a personal encounter with God. You can have that cross wall, you know what I'm talking about? You can have those stickers on the minivans, right? You can even tattoo Philippians 4.13 on your wrist, because that's so cool. And not once ever have an encounter with God. Further, you can deceive yourself into having an encounter with God, or even having approval by God, by perhaps justifying your decisions, or justifying your sin, and at the reality, never really having an encounter with God. In chapter 2 of Jonah, that's exactly what we're going to see. We're going to see Jonah have a personal encounter with God in God's presence, the same presence that he was trying to flee in chapter 1. In this encounter and for the duration of our time, here, here's what I want you to know about restoration, right? Uh, here's the main idea. You write it in your scripture journal. Restoration begins with repentance where you are. Restoration begins with repentance 
where you are. In our time this morning, as we walk through what is considered Jonah's prayer, as we walk through Jonah chapter two, I want to highlight the process of restoration. And I want us to see what happens in restoration, what, what each stage of restoration looks like as we read through and examine Jonah's prayer. So once again, if you have a Bible with you, we're gonna start in chapter one, verse 17. It's the last verse of chapter one and work our way through all of chapter two. Here we go. Verse 17, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought my life from the pit. O Lord, my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Let's pray. God, we are in need of you. I think if we're honest, which is something that we're going to talk about this morning, God, I think when, if we're honest, we don't fully understand or even desire to understand your grace. And so, God, as we examine Jonah 2, as we examine Jonah's prayer, may your grace be evident. May you reveal your grace to us through your word so that we would become dependent on you, so that we would be humbled by you, and so that we would worship you this morning. God, I pray that our hearts have been softened through the singing of songs and hymns. And as they are softened, Lord, I pray that our hearts would receive what you have for us through your word, through the preached word. God, I pray that this would proclaim your glory, that this would make a great deal about you, and that this would ultimately be for our good. God, I pray that as we walk out of here later this morning, that we would walk out of here worshiping you, um, that we would walk out of here in obedience to you, all because of what you have done for us in Christ. God, for those that know Jesus, I pray that they would come to know Jesus better this morning. I pray that you would surface things that are a little uncomfortable, maybe things that we don't necessarily want to talk about. I pray that you would reveal that through uh, Jonah's prayer. God, for those that don't know Jesus, I pray that they would come to know Jesus. I pray that they would come to know that there is hope found in you, that they are helpless, not hopeless. 
and that they would come to know you this morning, that their hearts would be redeemed and regenerated, that their, heart, that their minds would be renewed, and that they too would walk out of here in worship of you and obedience to you. God, we thank you for this morning and this opportunity to worship you. Uh, we ask all these things in your name. Amen. So I want to walk through the process of restoration. Those of you who know me, I love lists, I love whiteboards, and this speaks to my heart because I get to break it down in a sense of a process. And so we're going to walk through the process of restoration, and I want to give you three stages of restoration. Now, each stage, very, uh, you know, uh, obviously each stage is going to, we're going to unpack each one, so there are subpoints. but we're going to unpack each stage. Here are the three stages of restoration as seen in Jonah 2. Number one, honesty. Number two, confession. And don't worry if you're taking notes, it's going to be up there in a little bit, right? Uh, number two is confession. And finally, number three is surrender. So honesty, confession, and surrender. And so to bring you slightly up to speed in terms of what has happening, Jonah has been hurled into the sea. The sailors have now left worshiping God. The seas have calmed down. He's been treading water. And at this point, he is sinking. He's drowning. And so the Lord appoints, as is written in verse 17, appoints a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And in this great fish, he is in the belly of it for three days and three nights in the dark, contemplating what's going on. In other words, he is forced to find himself in a place where it is just him and the Lord. He is forced to find himself in a place where he is going to encounter God personally. And it begins with honesty. We're going to see this in verses 1 through 3. And so the first part of restoration must include honesty because honestly, we don't really like being honest. We don't really like being honest. Many of us don't like being honest for several reasons. Perhaps it's because we have to recognize and admit that we failed again. Many of us don't want to be honest with ourselves, maybe because we actually have to now just admit something. That we have to admit charges that have been brought before us. That we have to admit our sin. That we have to admit something that we just don't want to. Some of us don't want to be honest, and really it's, it's pulled out of those two reasons. Some of us don't want to be honest because we're still mm, holding on to our pride and arrogance. That something is still speaking louder to us than Jesus, than, than what God has accomplished in Christ for us on our behalf on the cross, that there is still something else, and so therefore we hold fast to our pride. We hold fast to our arrogance. And a lack of honesty, we need to come to terms with this, a lack of honesty hinders our restoration and it hinders our sanctification because there's no ownership from us. Ownership is hard because of everything that we just talked about. We've got to admit things. We've got to put things on the table. We have to be, in short, honest. And when you look at verses one through three, that's exactly what we see Jonah doing. We see Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. So he's crying out to God, and then he continues, For you cast me into the deep, 
Into the heart of the seas and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Jonah is honest, not just with what's going on, but Jonah is about to be honest with the sin that he has committed. Part of honesty also means recognizing discipline and knowing the discipline, excuse me, knowing the difference between punishment and discipline. See, as he finds himself in the belly of this fish, he's going to recognize that God is disciplining him as a result of his disobedience. Discipline is not punishment. It is correction. It is sanctification. It is rooted in love. Hebrews, this is Hebrews 12. I just want to go over one verse real quick. This is Hebrews 12, verse 11. The writer says this. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Discipline is not punishment. And I think that's part of being honest because sometimes when God disciplines us, we don't want to necessarily take ownership, so we don't want to be honest, and so we start saying things like, God, why are you doing this? Haven't I done these other things well? God, why would you allow this? Haven't I been X, Y, and Z for you? Part of being honest, uh, when it comes to restoration, part of being honest means recognizing discipline and knowing the difference between discipline and punishment. Because for the Christian, punishment was already received and paid for by Jesus on the cross on your behalf. Punishment, therefore, is removed from all who turn to him in faith alone. There is no punishment. Your sin has been covered and paid for. And discipline, the purpose of discipline, which is rooted in love, is meant to correct us. Is meant for our will to align to the Father's will like a good father who disciplines his children for the purpose of aligning them to their will, that is what God does to us. So once again, the first part of restoration includes honesty. And in honesty, we must recognize discipline and know the difference between discipline and punishment. Right? That's the whole point of being honest to begin with. Let's move on to the second one. The second one is confession. This is verses four through seven. There are three things that I want to, I guess, unpack when it comes to confession. Now, when you see these up on the screen, if they come up on the screen, these aren't necessarily steps that I want you thinking about. Like, oh, I got to do this, then I got to do this, then I got to do that. I'm just pulling this out from Jonah 2. Right? You might just be doing this already. verses four through seven. Let's look at those briefly. Jonah says, then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. So Jonah is being honest, and here we enter the second part of restoration, confession. The first thing in confession means that we are aware of the separation between us and God. That's what we see in verse four. I'll read it one more time. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. The word driven means that he has been cast from the presence of the Lord, that he is aware of the separation. 
Last week, as we talked about the, uh, fleeing the presence of the Lord, one of the questions on our guide was, well, what does it mean to flee the Lord? And our Friday night group, we were talking about it, going back and forth on a lot of things. And after that discussion, I think I would boil it down to this. Fleeing the presence of the Lord is not having communion with God. Because we talked about avoiding responsibility, not being in his word, not praying, all those things which are true. And I think we would just bottle that up to communion with God. Fleeing the presence of the Lord is avoiding communion with God. In confession, as we see in Jonah, he is recognizing the separation between him and God as a result of a lack of communion. He's been fleeing the presence of the Lord. So he's aware of the separation. He's also aware of his depravity. Look at verses five and six. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. There's nothing Jonah can do. There's nothing Jonah can do and everything is closing in on himself. In short, he cannot save himself. And this has nothing to do with his strength or his intellect, or his gifting. He can do nothing. Whether he lives or dies, he can do nothing but remember the Lord. And as he remembers the Lord, he is faced with his depravity. I want to talk about that briefly. Depravity does not mean that we are uh, totally incapable of doing good. It does not mean that we are as bad as we could ever be. Depravity does mean, however, that we are equally corrupt outside of Christ. That our hearts must be regenerated. That our minds must be made new. And that happens when we recognize our depravity. A personal encounter with God involves us recognizing our depravity. And then hear me on this. Depravity demands dependency. Depravity demands dependency. What kind of dependency? Sin-covering, heart-changing, new creation type of grace. That's what it demands. That's the kind of dependency it is. Depravity teaches us that we're not, we're helpless. We're not hopeless. If we can't recognize our depravity, then either we don't know Jesus or we're comfortable in our sin, right? Even talking about depravity gets some people uncomfortable. So let's just look at 1 John 3, verse six. This is what he says. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. If we cannot recognize our depravity, either we really don't know Jesus Therefore, we've got to go back to step one. We need to be honest. Either we don't really know Jesus or we are comfortable in our sin. Now, why, are we, why would we be comfortable in our sin? Because you didn't feel the lightning bolt. Maybe you committed the sin and nothing happened. Maybe you looked at something you shouldn't have or did something you shouldn't have. Nobody said anything. The ground didn't crumble from under you. The lightning bolt didn't strike. The water isn't hot enough for you to feel it. 
I think if we find ourselves comfortable with our sin, then really we need to be, going back to one, we need to be honest that we really don't recognize our depravity. And if we don't recognize our depravity, then we really don't recognize our dependency on grace. And if we don't depend our, we don't have an understanding of our dependency on grace, then we really don't know what grace is. Oh man, systematic, I love that, right? <clears throat> so in confession, we see the awareness of separation or the lack of communion, we could say that. The lack of communion. We see him recognize his depravity, and then we see him remember God. We see him remember God's faithfulness. Look at verse seven. In verse seven, this is the second half, I believe. No, uh, second half of verse six. He says, yet you brought my life from the pit. Oh Lord, my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. The same presence that Jonah was attempting to flee is now the presence he enters through prayer. The same presence that Jonah was attempting to flee is now the presence he enters through prayer. A personal encounter with God involves us coming into his presence through prayer. Last week, I talked about three reasons that the church finds itself asleep or finds herself asleep. It included uh, being surprised at godliness, hitting the snooze button, and finally, no evidence of prayer or preaching the gospel to ourselves in the daily. You can listen to that sermon another day. This is part of it. When we walked through chapter one, at no point after God called Jonah to go to Nineveh, we didn't see Jonah go and talk to other prophets. Like, hey man, this is really hard. I don't know what to do about this. What do you think? We didn't see Jonah go to prayer. Lord, why would you be calling me to do this? Other prophets did it, right? So Jonah's no, like he's not special, right? And what we see in chapter two is in light of him being honest and in the midst of his confession, he enters into the same presence that he was trying to flee through prayer. I don't know about you, but when I came to our Friday night group, we talked about a lot of different practical ways in which we flee the presence of the Lord. In short, I just mentioned a lack of communion with God. Now, what's interesting about that is that we could all recognize that. Yeah, man, I haven't really been reading, or I haven't been doing this, or my time in worship is lacking, or dry, or X, Y, and Z. What we see Jonah do is enter into that presence through prayer. He enters into that presence through prayer. And in the presence of God, not only are we humbled, but God meets us where we're at. And as he does, we're reminded that he has pursued us, and he is the one that has kept us by his faithfulness. It's a wonderful place to be. It is a wonderful place to be. Because when we recognize that, that we're in the presence of God, humbled in the presence of God, in prayer, we are brought to surrender. Or we are brought to a place of surrender. This is verses eight and nine. Jonah continues. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. 
one of the things that happens when we are brought to a place of surrender is that we forsake our idols. We forfeit our idols. We discard our idols. We repent of our idols. We could define idolatry by saying it is anything or anyone that takes the presence of God and that takes prominence over God. I want you to listen to to Martin Luther. He's a reformer from the 16th century. This is what he writes about idolatry. He says, people even today come to commit spiritual adultery of a more subtle kind, and it is quite frequent. They worship God not as he is, but as they imagine and desire him to be. The question is, what idols are you not forsaken? What idols are you not forfeiting? What idols do you put in the place and presence and prominence of God? Idols are often looked at as material or or even physical possessions. It could be anything from money to job security to relationships and marriage and kids. It could be really good things. But what makes idols tricky isn't so much the physical and the material type of possessions. What makes idols tricky are the types of idols that are intangible possessions. And so I wanna walk through some. If it's not already convicting enough, let's walk through some more stuff, all right? Perhaps an idol of yours is comfort where you value privacy, maybe a lack of stress and freedom. Maybe that's your thing. Maybe something that you idolize is approval, where you crave affirmation from others, you crave to be loved by others, and you have to be in relationships. You have to have all of the friendships. You have to have the relationships so that you would be loved well, so that you would be affirmed regularly, so that you would ultimately have others' approval. Perhaps your idol is control. This one's preaching to me. When it comes to control, where you value self-discipline, you value certainty, and you value standards. Maybe it's not control. Maybe it's power. Maybe the idol that you so wrap yourself around is power where you value success and winning and influence and respect. When it comes to idols, they come at a price. Listen to what Jonah says one more time. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. He's saying those who pay idols or who pay to vain idols forfeit their hope in the grace of God. So when we look at comfort, when we look at approval, when we look at control, and when we look at power, there is a price to pay for these idols. To keep them alive, to keep them uh, alive and well, there is a price we pay. So if your idol is comfort, that is uh, valuing privacy and a lack of stress, maybe the price you pay is reduced productivity. Maybe it's procrastination. If the idol that you value is approval, affirmation, and love from others, then maybe the price that you pay is less independence so that others would 
affirm you and love you well. Maybe the idol is control where you value self-discipline and certainty and so you pay, the, the price you pay is loneliness. Maybe your idol is power, success, influence, respect. Therefore, the price you pay is being burdened and increasing your responsibility. When we indulge and embrace idols, we forfeit God's love and faithfulness. When our hearts are governed by idols, we forfeit our presence with the Lord. When our hearts are governed by idols, we forfeit our presence with the Lord. Surrender involves repenting from idols that cannot and will not deliver. Repentance means turning away from your sin and trusting in Jesus right where you are. Jonah doesn't know if he's going to live or die. He's in the belly of a fish. He's hanging out. For all he knows, he's going to die by digestion through stomach acid, right? Like, he doesn't know what's going to happen. But he finds himself having a personal encounter with God, and that encounter forces him to be honest. It leads him to confession, and it brings him to surrender, It brings him to a place of surrender where he repents right where he's at. What's keeping you from repenting right where you are? The chair that you're sitting on. What keeps you from repenting? Because when we talk about repentance, we're like, we'll do it on Monday, because Monday sounds like a really good day. It's the start of the week, I think. Uh, You know, well, I'll repent like, I just got to feel it. Well, then we got to go all the way to one and saying, well, we're not being honest or you're not being honest with yourself. You're not being honest with what's actually happening. What's keeping you from repenting right where you are? Surrender, number two, surrender or under surrender, we see forsaking of idols and then we see obedience. Look at the first part of verse nine. Verse nine, he says, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. So we are seeing from chapter one, this dude who is super hardened toward God and what God had told him to go and do. Now he's in a place where he is having a personal encounter with God and is forced to be honest with himself and that drives him to confession. And what we are seeing is this transformation of Jonah's heart and he is now surrendering, he is forsaking his idols and we now begin to see obedience. See, in repentance, our hearts are changed and our minds are made new and we get to obey God. We get to obey God. We obey God because we belong to God. Because as Peter writes, we are his prized possession. We obey God because we get to out of the gratitude, or excuse me, we get to out of gratitude, not guilt. What guilt does the Christian carry? That guilt has been removed and nailed to the cross, nailed to Jesus on your behalf. You have no more guilt. It has been paid for. It has been atoned for. It has been covered by the faithfulness and blood of Jesus Christ. You have no more guilt. Paul confirms this in Romans 8. There is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. 
And so our obedience is out of gratitude. Our obedience is because we belong to God. Our obedience is because we get to, not because we have to, but because we get to. And finally, when surrender, we see him repenting, you know, forsaking his idols. We see obedience taking place. And then we see worship. This is the the last part of verse nine. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So in this process of restoration, we see Jonah be honest. We see him come to a place of confession. And we see him come to this place of surrender. And surrender includes worship where he is giving all the glory and honor to God. Jonah doesn't know that he's going to be saved or whether or not he will be saved. He doesn't know whether the circumstance is going to change. But he worships God right where he is. He worships God right where he is. The whole idea of restoration is that restoration breeds worship. It breeds worship. This would be the definition of joy. Like, he's about to be digested through stomach acid. He doesn't know whether or not the circumstance is going to change. He doesn't know whether or not God is going to do something or not. And yet that is not the point of his prayer. The point of his prayer is that restoration breeds worship. And it brings him great joy. But in addition to that, we see the transformation of his heart. That if restoration breeds joy, then that doesn't only lead us to joy, but it also leads us to evangelism. He says it, salvation belongs to the Lord. If homie gets out, which he does, though he doesn't know that right now, if homie gets out, he wants to preach to everyone and anyone because salvation belongs to the Lord. He did nothing to get himself outside of that fish. He has done nothing, but God has done everything for him and through him. And so there is great humility when we proclaim what God has done. There is great humility when we proclaim who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. There is great humility when we proclaim that Jesus welcomes all who turn to him. Restoration breeds worship. It's not just joy, it's also evangelism. Because if you skip ahead, not like you can't, if you skip ahead in the next chapter, he's going to Nineveh. He is going to preach repentance. Restoration begins with repentance right where you're at. Restoration begins with repentance right where you're at. And so as we conclude this chapter, the next question that at least I was thinking about this week was, in light of this, how does Jonah bring us hope in Jesus? How does Jonah bring us hope in Jesus? I want to highlight two verses. The first one is verse 17 from chapter 1. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, you got a Bible with you? Let's go to Matthew chapter 12. We're going to look at one verse. Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. That's what Jesus says. Jesus says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, 
so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus is the greater and better Jonah. Say it one more time. Jesus is the greater and better Jonah. Whereas Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of the fish for his disobedience, Jesus spent three days and three nights in the heart of the earth for our disobedience. Where Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of the fish because he was running from God, Jesus spent three days and three nights in the heart of the earth because he was obeying God. Jonah was saved from death, but Jesus conquered death. Jonah's deliverance only saves Jonah, but Jesus saves anyone who trusts in him. Restoration begins with repentance where you are. And I want to close with this, and then we'll dive into prayer. This is Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43, verse 1. But now, and I pray that this would be our cry, that this is what we would hold fast to. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Restoration begins with repentance right where you are. And so if you know Jesus, let me just encourage you to come into the presence of the Lord in prayer. In brought to my knees, ultimate surrender prayer. Be honest. Confess what is before you and surrender to the Lord so that you would be in his presence. And if you don't know Jesus, he invites you to come to know him. He invites you to come to know him so that your heart would be changed, so that your mind would be renewed, so that you would have not just salvation, but so that you would be restored rightly to God. Restoration begins with repentance right where you are. Let's pray. God, we, uh, God, we need you. Lord, we need you because, uh, man, uh, walking through Jonah's prayer, <laughs> sometimes it's hard to be, to be honest. Maybe because we want to overlook stuff or we just don't want to talk about certain things. And so, God, as as we're coming to a close in our time, Lord, Lord, I pray that that it would be your grace that would enable us to begin this process of restoration. That the same grace that saved us, the same grace that sustains us, the same grace that transforms us would be the grace that enables us to come before you 
in humility, to come before you in prayer, to come before you totally honest. That this grace would enable us not just to be honest, but also to, to, to recognize discipline. And in the midst of that discipline, that we would find uh, hope and assurance that, that the work that you began in us, that you will complete that that is where we would find hope and assurance. Holy Spirit, as you lead us to confession, may we see that grace is our only hope. May we see that grace is our only hope. And as a result, as we surrender before you, that surrender would breed worship, that we would forsake idols, that we would repent of our sin and that we would fall in obedience to you, that we would worship you, your name and your glory, that our hearts would be changed. God, I pray that like Jonah, we would be faced with a personal encounter with you for your glory and our good. God, we desire to be more like Jesus. May that begin here. May that begin right now. May that begin with repentance in our seat, on the stairwell, in the back, wherever. As we're listening to this, Lord, may it begin with repentance. May our eyes be fixed on Jesus. May we see that this is for our good and your glory. Lord, as we walk into a time of tithes and offerings, Lord, may this be a continued form of worship. May this be a demonstration of what you have done, not just for us by demonstrating generosity, but that this would be a time where we get to demonstrate the work that you have done for us. And so it's transformation. God, may we give sacrificially. May we give generously. May we give to the glory of your name. Lord, we thank you for this time of worship. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.